Well, good morning. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. We're going to be considering a few verses from that book, and uh, I trust you you will be helped to have God's Word open uh, this morning. We're going to continue to refer back to it and looking at it in particular, and so it'll help you stay engaged, I trust, to be in Colossians 3 with me this morning. And while you're finding your way to Colossians 3, let me bring you uh, greetings from your brothers and sisters at Hamilton Baptist Church, where it's uh, your pastor, uh, Jacob, just uh, expressed that I serve as senior pastor and have been affirmed to preach the gospel, and I'm delighted to be able to be here with you this morning. Um, I, I'm in partic particularly delighted to be here because I've, I've never been with you before, worshiped with you before, and of course I have spent a, a great deal of time with your pastor, Jacob, over the last four years or so. And uh, Jacob has been a, a great encouragement to me. And he has been a great source of counsel and wisdom and exhortation to continue faithfully in the gospel ministry. And I just want you to be aware of that. I know you're richly blessed by him and his family, but he's not just simply blessing this congregation. Uh, he seeks to be a blessing to others, and I count myself among them. And so I'm very thankful for Jacob and indeed uh, this church here. So here we are in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 15 and go through verse 17 this morning. Hear now the word of God. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Shall we pray together? Father, we are thankful for your word and the instruction that it provides. In particular, uh, this morning as we set our hearts on this passage, we're, we're thankful for the guidance that it gives to us as to how your people should gather. and What is it that we should be doing when we gather? And so we pray that this would be instructive for us, perhaps a reminder, perhaps, perhaps a renewed exhortation, perhaps even a, an impetus for restructuring. And so we pray that you would help us. We pray that your spirit would come and who indwells us, that you would open our minds to understand your word and our hearts to receive it, our wills to apply it to our lives. Even now as we pray like your servant prayed long ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. It was in the spring of 1940 when Adolf Hitler's army was marching through Europe and into France where they were confronted with an army of about 350,000 British and Allied soldiers. But because of the, the military maneuvering of the German forces, the British army was forced to retreat back to the beaches of a small Belgian town called Dunkirk. There they were trapped there, uh, the beaches behind them, the German army in front of them, and the massive British force knew that they had been terribly outnumbered and were waiting soon to be obliterated by the German army. In England, waiting back home as they sent their entire force out there, expecting certain news of annihilation of 350,000 soldiers, received a three-word transmission back from that besieged army. 
Nine letters, three words. It simply read, but if not. But if not. And you may wonder, was this kind of some secret code that they're sending? Some subtle message that was being sending back? I can already see some recognition on some of your faces. No, it's actually a scripture quote from the story of finding the book of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they stood there before the king and were confronted by the fiery furnace in front of them, if you will, confronted by their certain annihilation. And they would say to that pagan king, were they not, as, as you are aware of, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, the British army, surrounded, cut off, on the brink of destruction, was declaring to Britain, and I think indeed the rest of the world, that God was indeed able to deliver them from certain destruction. But if he did not, they would remain faithful and vigilant to death anyway. As stunning as, as this idea is, that they would send this message, what's I think for me equally stunning is that those who received the message immediately understood it. Right? They knew it was a scripture reference. They knew how to apply it. They, they knew what it meant. In fact, not just those who received it, but the entire nation of Britain received it as, as the Brits were galvanized. Perhaps you've seen the movie. It's a wonderful movie. But one historian puts it in this way. In the days that followed, fishing boats, yachts, rowboats were sent out from the shores of England, headed across the dangerous waters of the English Channel, and at risk of their own lives from enemy fire, began evacuating the army in what historians now refer to as the miracle of Dunkirk. The entire nation was galvanized by that reference to Scripture. I think our generation, sadly, would never have gotten the message. Certainly never been so inspired, so separated we are from God's Word, despite the exhortation that we see here before us in verse 16 to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3 is a, is a wonderful passage if you're looking for a summary of the Christian life. Uh, it, it is very much a, a kind of exhortation after exhortation on Christian mor mora uh, uh, morality or Christian ethics. And we learn from Colossians 3 that the Christian life is simply not a life that is filled with ideas in our mind, but it is a life that is lived under our Lord. It all begins, as you note there in chapter 3 and verse 1, in a very famous passage in the book of Colossians, if then, or perhaps since then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And so you see what Paul is saying here as he begins Colossians chapter 3, he tells us of our Christian identity. We're reminded that we have, if we are in Christ, we have died. Verse 3. Not only have we died to the old self, we have been raised with Christ, verse 1. And then we're told again in verse 3 that the life in which, when the resurrected life which we're now living, we're living hidden in Christ who is seated in heaven, awaiting, verse 4, the true self to be revealed when Christ who is our life uh, appears, we will appear with him in glory. And so Paul begins the, this Christian ethic by, by beginning with an understanding of who we are in Jesus. And in light of who we are, 
are in Jesus. He then goes on in verses 5 through 8 and says, put to death these things that linger in your life. And, and then he goes on, he says, put on the new life that is fitting to who you are in verses 9 through 12. And then eventually in verses 13 through 17, he begins to explain how it is we relate to each other, how you and I should interact in this new life. Those are verses 13 and verses 14, and then we finally get to verses 15 and following, and we begin to discover, okay, what do we actually do when we gather together? So we, when we come together as we are now, what should happen? What should take place? And in light of that, many have identified these verses to be so precious to us because there are so few glimpses in the New Testament as to what the New Testament church does when they come together. And so what we see here are, the, I think, the, if you want to take two key elements, oh, I think there's five elements here, but the two key ones, at least the ones that have been burdened upon my heart, is that when we come together, we receive the word of Christ and, and uh, we give pra uh, praise to our Christ. So we have the reception of the word of Christ and the praise of the people of Christ. We also see that we should submit to the peace of Christ, God, be guided by the name of Christ, and give thanks to the Father of Christ. And so I look forward to exploring those with you this morning. So begin by considering that we should submit to the peace of Christ. Know what he says in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I was teaching this passage to my children last night, and I, I asked them, tell me about peace. What is peace? What, what's going on in your life when you're experiencing peace? And quite often, we, we, the, the, the kind of the imagery that they uh, laid out for me is, well, we're, we're at peace when everything is well, and, and, and the circumstances are good is when we're at peace. So you might think about peace of, uh, you know, on a, with a cozy blanket and a cup of uh, coffee by a fire. You think, well, that's a very kind of peaceful place, or maybe you're more of a beach person. And so you think of peace there, the nice breeze on the beach with the waves rolling in, and it's at those points you're at peace. But you see, that kind of peace is, we might call that a very fragile peace, isn't it? Right? It's wonderful. We love that. Uh, but it is easily destroyed, right? So peace is a cozy blanket and a cup of coffee by the fire, right? Well, what happens when the, when the coffee gets cold, right? I mean, you know, what happens if someone takes the blankie away? So this kind of peace is defenseless against changing circumstances. But you notice what the peace in which Paul is commending us to is a peace of Christ that rules. Is that interesting? I don't think we often think about peace ruling us. This is a peace of Christ that reigns, doesn't retreat. It comes into our hearts, he says, and there it rules. It's actually an interesting word. It's actually the word for umpiring. It's actually the word umpire. Now, Jacob mentioned I have eight children, five of which play baseball on four different teams. So we are saturated with baseball uh, uh, this, this time of year. I was just baseball all the time. And of course, we're, we're very delighted to do so. We're, we're, not a, we're not a soccer family, I'm afraid. We're a baseball family. Of course, God invented baseball, so we've embraced it fully and find our delight in baseball. So, but when God invented baseball, he also invented umpires, right? And so when a ball, I'll, to, I'll explain a little bit about baseball. When a ball gets to first base, right about the same time, a runner gets to first base. And we're not quite sure, did the runner be, get there first? The ball get there first? We look to the umpire and the umpire makes a, a determination. The umpire says he's either out or he's safe. The umpire rules and that settles it. 
So in Paul's day, when they played baseball, it got violent, okay? And the umpire would rule with an iron fist. He would literally throw people out of the game. Not just not say, you're out of here. He'd literally pick them up and, and throw them out. And Paul says, listen, let the peace of Christ throw out any thought in your hearts that come and bring that excessive worry or that excessive fear or that excessive uncertainty as it rules according to the truth, according to the rule book, if you will, according to what God has said of you. The priest of Christ is to umpire our hearts and decide what's fair and what's foul. So this is not a weak, passive peace. The peace of Christ comes in and rules, or Paul will say in the book of Philippians, it, it guards, it defends. You see how different this is from the world's peace. In fact, Jesus drew that, that distinction, didn't he? He said in John 14, my, my peace I give you not as the world gives you. So there's a world's peace, there's a Jesus's peace. And I think the difference is the world's peace leaves you when circumstances go bad. And you know that peace, right? You know what it's like to be at peace and immediately, one second later, you read that email and that peace is totally gone. It's absent. It's like it was never there. Right? That's not the peace that Paul is exhorting us to. This is a peace that is not defeated by circumstances, but rules over them. It's not based upon pleasantness. It's based upon our union with Christ. It's based upon our identity with Christ. Because the reality is, Christian, you have died to the old life. You have been raised in Christ. You are now hidden with Christ, who is seated in heaven, and one day when Christ will return in glory, he will bring your glory with you. In light of those truths, when people come and criticize you, and rather than freaking out and say, oh, no, they don't like me. Oh, what am I going to do now? Everything's going wrong. No, the peace of Christ comes and grabs that thought by the collar, and it ejects it from the game. Because it reminds us, according to verse 4, for instance, that Christ is my life. Not you. Certainly not your opinions of me. Christ is my life. And you see, it's that peace that Paul now explains should be influencing the relationships you have in the local church. I mean, look, continue on in verse 16. Let the, uh, verse 15, excuse me, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, nobody says, to which indeed you were called in one body. So one body, that's a reference to the local church. Paul talks about this over and over again in the book of Colossians. And in that one body, the local church, here in particular, uh, Loudon Valley Baptist Church, you are called to live at peace. In fact, many translations put it this way. As members of one body, we were called to peace. I'm preaching from the ESV this morning. You still get it there. It says in verse, six, verse 15, to which indeed you were called. Which is just a relative pronoun. We look for the antecedent. What is that pronoun referring to? It's referring to the peace. So let the peace of Christ rule my heart because I have been called to live at peace in the body of Christ. To be at peace with one another. Now Paul assumes this is going to be a challenge. Which is why in verse 12 he says you should be patient with each other. And why in verse 13 he says you should endure one another. And again in verse 13 you should forgive one another. And above all things in verse 14 you should put upon love with one another. That's why this is being exhorted upon us. Because peace between us is, is not natural in this fallen world. And it only happens when the peace of Christ is beginning to reign in my heart. So when you become offended by so-and-so, you go to the peace of Christ and get a ruling. And in a ruling on this thought here, 
And the peace of Christ comes and says, well, so-and-so Christian? You say, yeah, okay. Did Jesus die for so-and-so? Yeah, Jesus died for so-and-so. Is that your brother and sister in Christ? Yeah. Have they been forgiven of all their sin by a holy God? Yeah. All right, so the thought of you being offended by them, I'm going to kick out of the game. That doesn't belong here. Because that is your sister, brother in Christ, who Christ has died for. Maybe the peace of Christ takes you to the gospel and says, Jesus covered all your sins. Are you forgiven from everything you have committed? All of it? Yeah, I am. God's forgiven you from all your transgressions? Yeah, he has. Well, why don't you live out of that truth rather than your self-defense and your self-protection? In fact, you notice the final, final three words in verse 15, and be thankful. It almost seems like it's out of place. What is that and be thankful doing there, right? Well, I think Thanksgiving perhaps is the panacea for many spiritual ills, and we might call it the vaccine for Christian disunity. It reorients you to the gospel. If you're living in gratitude, you're going to forget you're supposed to be grumbling. You're too busy being thankful, too busy thanking God for your forgiveness. I wonder how many words we would not say and how many relationships we would not damage and how many sleepless nights we would not suffer through if we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. So many people I know are living in bitterness. They're living in hurt. They're living in uncertainty. They're living in fear. Paul says, no, you should live in peace. But you must do it. You know, this is an imperative. This is a command. And let the peace of Christ. You have to do this. You, you can't let the fear of man rule you. You can't let faithlessness rule you. You can't let pleasant circumstances rule you. You have to let the peace of Christ rule. One way we do so, I believe, is when the word of Christ dwells within us. The peace of Christ rules, we might say, where the word of Christ dwells, which brings us to our second point, that we are to receive the word of Christ. According to verse 16, we read, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This phrase, word of Christ, is very unusual. I think it's only two, three times we find that in the Bible. It's usually we, we find a reference to the word of God. The word of Christ, he's used the word of Christ here, perhaps, we're not exactly sure, but perhaps because he wants the, the exhortation of the word of God to have its focus upon Christ, and certainly we do as well. You read the book of Acts, and there, every sermon in the book of Acts comes from the Old Testament, and every sermon in the book of Acts is about Christ, right? And so the Old Testament is the word of Christ, certainly the New Testament is the word of Christ, and so we find here, and, and I think it is exceedingly helpful that the early Christians had at the center of their worship the, uh, the, the interpretation, the explanation, the application of God's word with the focus being upon Jesus. It was a word-centered worship, which you don't take that for granted. That is in contrast to most other forms of worship in that day and perhaps even in our day where the worship is focused upon action, doing things rather than listening, rather than hearing And so we find here, no, the gathered worship of God's people. By the way, this exhortation, let the word of Christ dwell in you, is not simply for you in your quiet times, because you read on and he tells us how this has happened, teaching, admonishing one another, singing, and so forth. We'll get to that in a moment. He's talking about the gathered worship of God's people, that the word of Christ comes and, and, and it dwells among us as it is proclaimed to us. So we don't, we don't primarily gather together in order to perform. We're not coming here for an act to perform. We're coming primarily for proclamation to hear and to receive. And we see this from the very early days of the church. The word of Christ was constantly at the center. And don't take that for granted. In our days where I think we might be losing that, as seems to me, I may be wrong here, but it seems to me more and more churches 
seem to be depending upon spectacle and technology and maybe even gimmicks rather than the clear teaching of God's Word. The Word of Christ is to dwell in us. And if it's to dwell, then, then we must receive it. It makes it home in us. So you receive it, by the way, not, by, not, not as a spectator, not like watching a movie like the movie Dunkirk. Right? You don't leave a worship service thinking, well, did, did you like it? What was your favorite part? Right? That's how we move. Remember when we went to movie theaters? That's how we would leave those, right? And we leave thinking, did I hear from God? What should I do? What should I think? How should I react? When Peter was summoned by the Holy Spirit in Acts 10 to preach in Cornelius' house, Cornelius and all his family had gathered. And before Peter could open his mouth, Cornelius says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We want to hear the word. We want to embrace what God has said. It's to dwell in us, to be at home in us. Not like a college dorm. You go into college dorm and every year it's stripped clean and the furniture's bare. No one leaves their marks on a college dorm. It's like your home, right? Leaves it, it dwells in your, in your home. You visit my house, you'll find pictures on the wall, uh, you know, hung on the wall and then occasionally drawn with crayon on the wall, unfortunately, right? You'll, you'll find things on the ground. You'll find crafts on the, on, the, on the refrigerator that our kids have made. You'll find a beautifully cultivated garden. You'll find a well-ordered kitchen. You're going to find a glorious two-and-a-half-story tree house with three decks built by a master craftsman, right? There's going to be, there's going to be marks there on this, in this home. The family is leaving its mark on that place, Well, Paul says the word of Christ is to leave its mark upon you. It's to dwell in you. It should mark you, mark your family, mark your church. People should be able to come and say the gospel dwells among these people for I see its mark in them. In fact, not just to dwell in you, but he says there, does he not, that it is to dwell in you richly. So it's not even enough for him to say, I just wanted to live there. I wanted to live there in a rich and wonderful way. I, I, do, you, I, do you drink coffee? Some of you drink coffee, I'm sure. Uh, I started drinking. I wasn't raised as a Christian, by the way. Um, just kind of put that over the banner of what I'm about to say. Uh, I, I started drinking coffee when I was 14 years old, uh, when I would sneak out of my uh, second-story bedroom, crawl down on the patio overhang, drop down, ride my bike two miles to Denny's. And uh, there I learned to drink coffee at 3 a.m. at Denny's. You ever been to Denny's at 3 a.m.? I mean, you know, any, any place, like, right, uh, Waffle House, it's a very interesting place. In fact, I spent seven years as a youth pastor in North Carolina, and once a year I'd have the middle school boys spend the night at my house. We would hang out and be stupid and play, and they, they, they would all go to bed around 2 a.m. 3 a.m., I'd wake them all up. I said, get your shoes on, we're leaving. They're like, what are you talking about? Where are we going? I said, we're going to Denny's. So I would take the teenagers, these, you know, 13-year-old boys, we would all go to the Denny's, and, and they would walk in these uh, very bleary-eyed boys would become very wide-eyed rather suddenly at 3 a.m. at Denny's. You've never seen such an assortment of people at Denny's uh, anywhere other than Denny's at 3 a.m. You've got sad people, you've got drunk people, you've got lonely people, you've got depressed people, you've got angry people. You wait at Denny's long enough at 3 a.m. in the morning, the police are coming, okay? And, and, and so well, we, we get, it's kind of my scared straight program, like shaping up boys, right? This could be your future, right? And we would get, we would sit there at Denny's, we'd get a long booth, I'd open the Bible, and I'd open to the book of Proverbs, okay? And I said, okay, I want to tell you about the fool. Okay, I would do so quietly, by the way.
way. I wasn't too loud on that. Um, but let me tell you about sloth and self-control and making wise decisions and so forth. And they would all drink coffee, right? And, and black coffee, we don't put syrup in it or sprinkles or whatever you do these days. Just Denny's, 3 a.m., cold, you know, dark and bitter coffee. And, and it, would, it would dwell in us richly, right? Dwell. So coffee dwells in me richly. By God's grace, he took that 14-year-old boy and saved him when he was about 17 years old and saved him from, in particular, his teenage rebellion against his well-meaning parents. Never saved me from my love of coffee, and it continues to dwell in me richly. Paul says, listen, I want the word to dwell in you richly. I want it to penetrate you. I want it to shape you. I want you to hear it again and again and again. I want you to want the refill. You want a refill? Yes, please. Give me some more, please. I want you to meditate on it and memorize it and discuss it. I want it to be like honey upon your tongue. I want it to be like a cold drink of water to a man dying in the desert, desperate. Give me the word of Christ. I want the word of Christ. In fact, Paul will tell us it dwells in us in three ways. He uses three participles, which are just helping verbs or subordinate verbs. In the English, they're all translated with I-N-Gs. So how is it the word of Christ dwells in us richly? Well, you notice it dwells by teaching and admonishing and singing. This is how it comes into us. It does these three ways. It comes through teaching, which is to be the positive act of sharing truth, admonishing, which would be a more negative act of warning people, straying from the truth, for instance. So that's how the word of Christ does dwells in us. But you notice, now look, read this very carefully, is this the preacher's job? Not according to Paul, though we'll, we can look at other passages and look at the centrality of preaching, but he says teaching and admonishing one another. This is not the ministry in particular of the leader or the pastor. This is the ministry of the church to one another, that the word of Christ is directing our conversations and our relationships. In other words, we might put it this way. The word of Christ will not dwell in you richly apart from the local church. Do you hear that? The word of Christ will not dwell in you richly apart from the local church. You can read the Bible. You can have your morning devotional times. You should, I believe. That is good for you. But you will be cutting yourself off from the ministry of the word of Christ shaping you, informing you if you do not have one another teaching and admonishing you, which takes place within the, word, uh, the local church. So we gather for worship, yes. We gather to hear preaching, yes. But if you think being part of a local church means you show up for an hour, an hour and a half once a week, and then you're off with the rest of your week, you, have, you are mistaken as to what God's wonderful plan for you to be part of a local community called, he calls his church. In fact, I think the worst of the mistake, you're, you're, you're this biblically commanded ministry. I'm just reading the Bible, right? Teaching and admonishing one another. That's what it says. This is what you are to do if you are in Christ. I am to teach and admonish one another you, it, within this context, which of course tells us relationships are essential in the church, doesn't it? So how can you admonish me or how can I admonish you if I don't? We don't know each other. We need to understand each other. We need to be in relationship with each other. And so we're seeking to do this ministry in your life, and it has a powerful impact like it had on, I'm sure some of you, uh, many of you probably know the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. 
um, that prominent voice in the LGBT movement from her position as a tenured English faculty member at Syracuse University. Uh, she, of course, she lived here in Percival for many years. Uh, she began reading her Bible as part of her academic research, which led to what she called her train wreck conversion. She writes in her autobiography, the Bible got bigger inside of me. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I kept going back to the church to hear more and more sermons. I made friendships with the people in the church, and I appreciated the way they talked about the sermons throughout the week, how the Word of God dwelt in them, her words, how they referenced it in the details of their days. Isn't it wonderful when God's people are teaching one another God's Word, and everywhere you turn, people are saying, you know, how was your week? It was wonderful. I learned this about God, or God was showing me this, or this is what I read in Scripture, and being able to impart that in someone else's life. How was your week? Well, this, I'm going through this struggle. Well, then someone over here says, well, I have a word from God for you that might apply to this. We need one another for this. Everyone will doing that. The Word of God will transform our lives and change us and direct us and guide us. And so the Word of God dwells in us through teaching and admonishing. And you notice the third participle is singing, singing. And if you allow me, I just want to make this an additional point. I may not be able to get through all five of my points this morning. I know my time is running, uh, running short. But you see, thirdly, that we are to find the praise of the people of Christ. For he says there in verse 16, doesn't he, that, uh, that we are uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And so what we learn is that from the very beginning, the church has been a singing church. God's people have always been singing. We have a book of songs, of course, in Scripture. There are choirs in the Old Testament, we know. Hebrews 13 tells us, let us offer through, a, through Jesus a sacrifice of praise to God. We find Paul and Silas singing in prison, Acts 16. You know, Mark 14, Jesus is at the Last Supper, and we, after he finished, it said, I listen, I won't drink from this cup again until I return. And then what do we read? Then they sang a hymn. There are Jesus and the 12 apostles singing together. In fact, one of the earliest descriptions of the church from a non-believer comes from a letter written by the governor of Bithynia, a man named Pliny the Younger, the year 112 AD, when the emperor Trajan wrote him and said, I hear about these Christians. I don't know nothing about them. Pliny writes back to the emperor and he says, quote, they are accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. They were singing from the very beginning. This letter written in 62 AD, about 30 years after the resurrection of our Lord, very early in the days of Christian life, we see what are they doing? They're singing, and we, in fact, we sing a diversity of singing. We see psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, we're not sure what those terms exactly mean. Paul doesn't define them. Some people try to figure that out. I'm not necessarily persuaded that we know exactly what they mean, but what we do know is that there is a variety in their singing, even at this very early, early time. And of course, singing, even as Jacob began our service this morning, is how we let the Word of Christ dwell into dwell in us. I mentioned that's the third participle there in verse 16. So the main exhortation, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we do that? We do so by singing. Singing to God, certainly, and singing also to one another. So there's a parallel passage in the book of Ephesians that's very clear. He says, addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are communicating to one another with our singing. So when we gather together, we sing to God, 
but at the same time, we are instructing one another in the word of Christ. We're doing this because we're not singing our opinions. We're singing what is grounded in and formed by and saturated with the word of God. And we're also doing it because we're not wearing noise-canceling headphones when we walk in, right? You didn't come in and there wasn't a basket of earphones, right? Because you are to hear one another. We are to listen to one another. We are to be shaped by each other's singing, encouraged by each other's singing. Your singing helps me believe that God is worthy of my praise too. It helps me to love God more, which is why we sing, right? I mean, why not just speak praises? Why do we sing them with musical accompaniment? What's going on there? Well, you notice what Paul says. It's about your affections. It's right here in the, in the, in the verse, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What does he mean we sing from our hearts? He means it's heartfelt, right? It, it, we're, there's an there's a, 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 a engagement of our affections towards Christ. To sing without your heart, Jesus would call hypocrisy. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It's not what he's after. He's after our hearts. And so what you find, I believe, is a church that is filled with the Word of God will have hearts filled with joy, and the joy-filled heart will sing to God. Joy and singing goes together, right? Ladies, your husband come home humming a tune, right? Even if he can't carry a tune for his life, you're happy because you know he's happy. When my daughters get together and they're playing music, I walk in the house and my house is filled with music, I'm immediately filled with a joy because I know my daughters are filled with joy. Otherwise, they would not be singing. This is why we read in Psalm 100. It was read for us to begin our service. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Come into his presence with singing. Joyful noise, come into his presence with singing. We sing because it's an expression of joy. It's just not my idea. The great John Edwards would write, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be the appointed holy, right? Or the reason we do this is entirely, he says, to excite and express religious affections. No, re no other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than prose and to do it with music, but only that these have a tendency to move our affections. So the church is to be filled with joyful singing, just not singing, but affectionate singing, joyful singing. Sadly, many churches are not. Many churches are filled with droning congregants that seem to be bored out of their mind and are not responding to God out of their heart. One skeptic of Christianity said, the chief contribution of Protestantism to human thought is the massive proof that God is a bore, okay? Right? Many people have been turned off from God by those who, who say they follow God and yet they do not follow with their hearts, right? Just the droning on, no joy, no love, no heartfelt affections in our singing. The solution, of course, is not gimmicks. The solution is not to turn up the band. The solution is to turn to the word, fill your mind with it, and let the heart respond in joyful singing. The church gathers. We consider the word of, the mind is considering God's truth. The heart is then in response, rejoicing in God's worth. Right? Those two go together. Now, to consider God's truth in our minds and feel nothing in your hearts as you consider the majesty of God, that's the knowledge of the devil. Just, that's James 2. 
Even the devil believes and he shudders. The devil has better theology than you and I. Believes everything that is true about God and he does not sing about it. He hates it. He does not love it. We, to, to, to engage our mind, but not our hearts, when considering God, as one put it, I think it's John Piper, is like eating without taste, discovery without delight, warning without fear, miracles without wonder, or gifts without gratitude. So the gathered church of God knows God's truth and delights in God's word. We see, fourthly, we should be guided by the name of Christ. You see that in verse 17. I don't have time to comment on that. But I will just note, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, you see the church is to give thanks to the Father of Christ. For we read in verse 17 at the very end, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. I don't know if you've picked up that theme there. Verse 16, sing with thankfulness. Verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 17 now, giving thanks to God the Father see it in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 2, abounding in thanksgiving, give thanks. I thank God, continue in prayer and thanksgiving over and over and over and over again. Paul in this book says, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. And we need to do so because when we are thankful, when we're filled with gratitude, we are declaring that God has been good to us. And if you are a Christian, he has. In fact, I would say if you are not a Christian, he has. You know, so many people miss it, don't they? So many people are disgruntled and grumbling. Maybe so many people are so distracted by their wants and their needs that they never stop to thank God for another day of life. I think another reason that we need the word of Christ to dwell in us is to learn what we've received, to give thanks for what God has given us. I tell my church about twice a year that every morning for the Christian is like Christmas morning. You, you have been opening gifts all day long, right? And you're going to keep opening gifts. I mean, you're, you're going to eat this afternoon, I trust. Where's that food come, come from? It comes from God. Okay. You're going to taste it. You have taste buds to enjoy it. You got maybe if you haven't hit, got the COVID yet, you got a nose to smell it. Where did that come from? came from God. You have people that might prepare it or money to purchase it. Where did that come? That came from God. That's God's gift to you. You're going to have people to enjoy it with. I'm going to eat with my wife this afternoon, eight wonderful and unique children, about 30 other people from my church coming over, and I'm going to be able to break bread with them. Where did they all come from? They came from God. It's just over and over and over and over. We're getting gift after gift after gift. We'll eat on plates from God, on tables from God. I'm going to walk to the table with legs given to me from God. I'm going to wash my hands with running water. That's from God. It's going to be hot. That's from God. Antibacterial soap. That's going to be God. We're going to talk and, and hear one another. All that's from God. Over and over and over and over. God is bestowing upon you gift after gift after gift after gift. And so thankfulness should not be foreign to us. It was just about a couple months ago. I was in Harris Teeter and I don't know what was going on in, in my life, but I walked into the produce section and I hope, I hope you didn't see me because it was somewhat ridiculous. But I was, I was amazed at, at the produce. I was just floored by the produce I, I, and the colors in particular. And I literally just started walking around and I found, I found yellow lemons and orange oranges and black plums and red tomatoes and green apples. I started looking for something blue. I just, there's anything blue here. And so I found blueberries. Uh, I mean, I, I literally held a lime in my hand for about 30 seconds. And I just stared at it. I was just, I mean, God made that. Can you do that? This is extraordinary. He made that, and then all this, I found something purple. I found an eggplant, which I find disgusting, but I gave thanks to God for it. I, I mean, he, he, God created that. God is uh, over and over. It's just, you see the wonder which God has done. 
if we have eyes to see it. If we have eyes to see it. And so let me just simply ask you, as we, as we prepare to close this morning, why are you not more thankful? Now, I, I word that question very carefully. I'm not saying you're not thankful. I don't want to presume that. Why are you not more thankful? That might be a good conversation to talk to one another over lunch. What, what would, like, if you invited a family over to your house and they left, and as they're walking to the car, they said, that was the most thankful people I think I've ever been around. What would have had to happen for them to reach that conclusion? Or what about your church? Someone walks into your church for the first time saying, I don't know what's going on with those people, but they seem just so thankful. What would be going on in your church? I, 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 don't, I don't know your church well, like I know my church, but so often I think when we gather together, and we spend most of our time talking about what we're annoyed with. Right? We're annoyed with COVID, or we're annoyed with this politician, or we're annoyed with, with so-and-so, we're annoyed with the weather, or we're annoyed with, I mean, just murmur, 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 grumble, 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 right? Standing there belly aching, totally oblivious to about 100,000 gifts right in front of us that God in His grace has given us. What would our churches be like if just thankfulness began to explode out of us and we had eyes to see everything in which God is giving us over and over and over again? I, and, and please, if you're in a, some of you are in a tough bind this morning, I'm not saying your hardship is not hard. We live in a fallen world. I don't want to minimize that at all. Yet even when we are sorrowful, Paul says sorrowful, yet always but rejoicing. How can we rejoice in sorrow? Because what God has given us is so much better than what you are suffering. And what he will give you is 10,000 times better than anything you have received right now. We're just living off appetizers. We haven't seen anything yet. I mean, he just over and over. The reasons to be grateful are everywhere. I'll tell you, listen, you understand this. If you wake up tomorrow and you're not in hell, you should get out of bed and dance a jig. Right? And your spouse turns over and says, what are you doing? He said, baby, I'm not in hell today. God has been gracious to me and merciful to me, and I never will be, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That ought to fill our hearts with delight, because you and I are not under the wrath of God today, not because we have earned that, but because we have been showered with mercy and grace, because our Lord has died for us. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Let me speak on behalf of these people here. I know they're delighted that you're here and you're welcome here anytime. And if you are ever given the, the impression that Christians believe we're accepted by God because we, we think we're better than you, we don't. We don't. We, in fact, it's the opposite. We're far more aware of our shortcomings than perhaps most people. But we believe that we are accepted by God because Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life in our place and then died upon the cross. And we think why Jesus was dying on the cross, he was dying in our place, receiving God's judgment, not for him, but for us. We think in some sense Jesus was experiencing hell on the cross, the wrath of God. And then three days later, we believe he rose bodily from the grave, ascended into heaven one day, will return in victory. And the Bible teaches that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And so I will tell you this morning, this is the most important thing you could hear this morning as we end. I come to you based upon the authority of the very word of God, and I offer you eternal salvation today. You can be forgiven of all your sins forever, be adopted into God's family, and live with him forever. If you would repent of your sin and yield your life to God through faith in Christ. And those Christians, we've done that. That's who we are in Christ. Because of that, let the peace of Christ reign, and the word of Christ dwell, and the praise of Christ abound, as we do all in the name of Christ, giving thanks to the Father of Christ. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. May it sanctify us in truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.